I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast that brings you your weekly wellness wisdom you can trust. And this week, I am diving deep into the natural world of circadian rhythms, what they are, how they rule our lives, and how we ignore them at our peril. Joining me for a fascinating chat on this and more is one of the world's leading experts, Professor Russell Foster. But first, I wanted to share an update with you that caught my eye this week in the news, which may be especially interesting to those listening to me in real time at the beginning of the summer, and of course, the start for many of peak hay fever season. Well, the UK Met Office are warning of a cloud of, quote, a particularly potent pollen to plague those who suffer with hay fever. Yeah, apparently the unusually warm and wet conditions last month may explain why so many of us are feeling worse than usual, as our air quality has been lowered while the potency of pollen has increased. Apparently a warm and wet May, coupled with a relatively warm spring, means there's a chance that the pollen that's developed is particularly potent. Well, as a hay fever sufferer myself, this is clearly not good news. But, and I know I've said it here before, I have found that taking the natural food supplement quercetin to be staggeringly effective in helping my own debilitating hay fever. In fact, just recently, I had a couple of friends come over, both of whom arrived absolutely streaming with full-on hay fever. And I mentioned quercetin to them. Neither had heard of it. Both were on mainstream antihistamines, clearly not doing much to help. So I gave them a couple of capsules each. And I kid you not, within not much more than an hour, both were significantly better and vowing to head home to buy their own supplies. So, incidentally, if you are going to buy some to try, the brand that I'm using is called BioCare and you can get 15% off everything on their website by using the affiliate discount code LizLoves. That's all one word, all in capitals, LizLoves. And their website is biocare.co.uk. And no, this is not an ad. I do just genuinely love the brand and want to share the love. Now, I'm sure we have all been guilty at some time or another of trying to burn the candle at both ends. Or maybe you work a night shift and you regularly have to force yourself to stay awake through the dark and sleep through the day. Or perhaps you even suffer terribly with insomnia 
and maybe you've got yourself into an unrelenting cycle of being awake all night. Well, according to a new book, we ignore our natural internal body clock at our peril. Well, it's well known that sleep deprivation can play a role in a long list of ailments from heart disease, dementia, infertility to obesity. And of course, it can also be the cause of accidents. According to his brand new book called Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Sleep and Health, my guest today is Professor Russell Foster, a leading expert in circadian neuroscience. And it shows just how much we have stopped listening to our body's natural daily rhythms. The brilliant book highlights how the trappings of modern life constantly disrupt the ancient and delicate mechanism that makes our body clock tick to such an extent that it impacts not only the quality of our sleep but also our metabolism, our overall health and even our happiness. He is with me now. Hello, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Liz, it really is a great pleasure to join you. Oh, do you know I have been following your work recently and it just seems very timely because I think sleep is at the forefront of people's minds at the moment. Maybe they had disrupted sleep during the lockdown or they can't sleep with anxiety because of pandemic or global stress or whatever. And we're hearing so much more I think about circadian rhythms and the natural body clock. Should we go back to start with the very basics, perhaps, of what you do and your field? Perhaps you can explain this whole circadian neuroscience. Well, I'm privileged to be a scientist who works on the brain, but with a speciality in trying to understand how the brain generates this internal representation of a day, this internal 24-hour clock or circadian rhythm. And what we're finding, of course, is that it's regulating every aspect of our physiology and our, our behaviour. And deep within the brain, there, within the hypothalamus, there's a structure called the suprachiasmatic nuclei, or the SCN, and it acts, acts as a master biological clock, regulating essentially every aspect of our biology. And what I do, my team does, and, and, and the whole field, is try and understand how the clocks tick, how they're regulated by the outside light-dark cycle, and how they regulate uh, everything uh, associated with our biology. So is this very much part of our own individual DNA? People talk about being a night owl or a lark. Is that something that is set within us that we can't fundamentally change? Well, our, our chronotype, um, our, whether you're a morning person or an evening person, is certainly influenced by our genetics. And, and we now know that subtle changes in some of these key clock genes can make you a morning person or an evening person. But our chronotype is more than just our genetics. So, for example, as we age, from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. And this peaks in women at around about 19 and a half and men about 21 and a half. And men tend to peak later than women. They, they go to bed and get up a bit later than women. And then after this time, then there's a move to a more morning chronotype. So at the time we're in our late 50s, 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed at 10. So there's our genetics, our sex, and our age can contribute to chronotype. But the fourth factor is light. Light at dusk delays the clock. Light at dawn advances the clock. 
And we, when we were all agricultural workers, we got sort of symmetrical exposure to dawn and dusk. But now, for example, in some teenagers, they will miss the morning light, which will make them get up earlier, but they'll get the afternoon-evening light, which will make them get up later. And so these four factors all interact to determine what sort of chronotype morningness versus eveningness person we are. I've heard it said that if you get up at dawn and look towards the sun, the sun is giving off a different type of light, different type of radiation, not so much the UV, more the sort of near-infrared that it does later in the day, and that actually helps set your body clock, as it were, to wake up at that time and then encourages a good night's sleep. Do you think there's some truth in that? Uh not really, no. I mean, we, we know that there are specialised light detectors within the eye and they are maximally sensitive actually to the blue part of the spectrum, to blue light. And in fact, the, 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 if you think of, if you look at the uh, at twilight, for example, mm. and you look at the horizon, then it's sort of orangey-red. But if you look at the dome of the sky, it's this glorious blue. And it's that blue that is the most effective at regulating the clock. But it's not just the colour of the light, but as I said, it's the timing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's dawn and dusk that is so important for setting our, our body clocks. Does that mean then that we should be outside at dawn and dusk to experience that, not through glass, but actually just looking at it directly? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly morning light, that is the most effective at setting about 90% of us. And so if you can't get outside, then sit by a window uh, while you eat your breakfast. I mean, it's very interesting that um, dog walkers, for example, uh, there was a study a few years ago showing that they slept better. And we don't know the explanation, but one possibility is they're getting out first thing in the morning, giving the dog a walk and getting bright morning light, which is, you know, so important for regulating the clock. When you talk about getting morning light, do you mean it has to be close to daybreak? I mean, how how late can we go with this? The earlier it is, the bigger the effect. Mm -hmm. But it's still effective a few hours, three or four hours, in fact, after sunrise or three to four hours before sunset. But it's most effective at the transitions. So what happens to us then when the clocks change? That's a really good question. And of course, we're out of kilter. And there's some very interesting studies showing that immediately after the clock change, there's a blip in the accident rate. There's even a blip to the Finnish study suggested uh, that there's a blip in the, um, the, the chance of having a heart attack. So it's sort of uh, essentially wow. where it's a bit like um, a jet lag. I mean, there's a sudden mm-hmm. shift. And if our bodies, if we're vulnerable, then our bodies will not react well to it. In fact, I'm sitting on a, a sort of a, an advisory board for deciding whether Australia will abandon daylight savings time and just have standard time. Western Australia already does that, but the other states have yet to make a decision. And I suspect, although I don't know, daylight savings time will be abandoned. Isn't that fascinating? So is it just humans that have this circadian rhythm? I know that your particular work focuses on the nervous system, but do we also talk about other beings, as, as it were, microbes, plants, that kind of thing? Well, I think that's what's turned out to be so exciting. You know, my, my original degree was in zoology, and so, you know, I have this, this love of, of comparative biology. And first of all, we used to think that the circadian rhythm itself was generated as a result of cell-cell interactions. It was a network property of cells. Then it was discovered that, in fact, 
a single cell can generate a circadian rhythm. And there's a bunch of clock genes. They're turned on. They produce clock proteins. Those clock proteins assemble, enter the nucleus, and turn their genes off. That protein assembly then breaks down, and then the clock genes are activated once more. And that negative feedback loop generates a circadian 24-hour oscillation. So the big revelation, first of all, is that a single cell can have a clock. And it meant that people started looking for clocks in single-celled organisms like amoebae and algae, for example, and they had them. And the thought was, okay, well, they're, they're sort of complicated single cells, but bacteria, for goodness sake, won't have a, have a circadian <laughs> clock. And, you know, uh, they do. Wow. So almost all life on the planet has some form of biological clock. Now, what's, I think, amazing is that the clock in the invertebrates, things like flies and, and sort of um, scorpions or whatever, and us, you know, the mammals, the vertebrates, the fish, the fundamental mechanisms, the genes and their proteins, are very, very similar in invertebrates and vertebrates, which means that the ancestor of our biological clocks goes back before the split between the invertebrates and the vertebrates. So we're going back 600 million years of evolution. Now, the plants, they have, again, circadian rhythms, biological clocks, but they use a different set of genes. And indeed, the bacteria have a different set of genes. And the fungi have a different set of genes. But they're all based upon this extraordinary molecular feedback loop. So it's almost a universal property of life. In fact, when they were looking for life on Mars, they were looking for the production of organic molecules on a sort of a, based upon the Martian day, which is 24 hours and about 36 minutes because they thought well you know part of the signature of life is to have a clock and we anticipate that if there is life on mars they will have a clock too that is fascinating and what you said there about plants i'd like to pick up on because i live in the countryside and i see that the day and the night shift with plants so when the sun comes out the petals of the flowers open and then they close up again at night is that to do with circadian rhythm or is that to do with the impact of sunlight no, that's what's so, I think, extraordinary. And in fact, the first demonstration of a circadian rhythm was in a plant, in the mimosa plant. You, you, many of your listeners will know it because if they touch the leaves of this plant, you know, they close up. So, that, so they're sensitive to touch. But if you just let them alone, then you'll see that the leaves will open during the day and close up at night. And a French astronomer called de Marien, he put plants in the cupboard under the stairs, <laughs> and he peeked in from time to time. And he noticed that the leaves were closed at night, and they were open during the day. And this this was not due to the changing light-dark cycle. This was a, an internal rhythm. And that was the first demonstration of, of, of a circadian rhythm. Subsequently, people took those plants down into the salt mine because they thought, well, it might be subtle changes in temperature. Mm. But under constant darkness, constant temperature, this leaf opening and closing would occur. And really, from those early observations, humans were looked at in the sort of 1960s, and then every sort of animal and plant has been looked at since. And we've gone, though, I think the exciting thing for me is we've gone from phenomenology saying, yes, they have this internal rhythm and how is that rhythm generated and, and of course how it's set to the external world how it's regulated by the light dark cycle it sounds that there is so much research going on at the moment into this area what are the biggest scientific discoveries do you think that have the most impact that have been made recently about this 24-hour biological cycle 
I think the first has to be the discovery of how the molecular clock works. And, of course, the Nobel Prize in 2017 to Hall, Ross, Bash and Young was for the discovery, the first understanding of a molecular clock in the fruit fly, in Drosophila. So that's been a, a big area. Uh, the second area has been, in, in, I think this is also what I find so exciting, in parallel with understanding how these circadian rhythms are generated, it's been an appreciation of why they're so important. And so we're discovering the modulation of the circadian system, for example, of immune responses, mm. and when that might mean it's a better time to have a vaccination or, or not. Yes, or that's metabolism. fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And then I guess the third area, which is the area we have worked in, is the discovery of how these clocks are then regulated. We sort of said there's an internal clock. It's usually a bit different from 24 hours. So it needs a daily resetting by the light-dark cycle. And what we were able to show is that the eye contains another light sensor, different from the visual cells, the rods and the cones. There's what we've called a photosensitive retinal ganglion cell, which detects the dawn-dust cycle and regulates internal time. And what we're working on at the moment is trying to understand how those cells change the molecular clockwork so we can ultimately develop drugs which will fool the clock that it's seen light. Now, why do you want to do that? Well, if you have no eyes, uh, and we're working very closely with Blind Veterans UK, and if you've lost your eyes as a result of uh, trauma or enemy action or, or indeed disease, then you have no ability to regulate internal time. So in a sense, those individuals have unremitting jet lag. And I think we're now very oh, close yes. to having developed a drug which will give back a sense of time to those individuals. So we're seeing, I think, key developments across the entire breadth of the subject. And so many people, you know, are now getting involved. They wouldn't necessarily have had a training in clocks, but they've come from, let's say, metabolism or cancer research. Uh, it's a great time to be a scientist in this area. <laughs> it sounds like it. And that is really just such a fascinating point that if you have lost your sight or maybe been born blind but I guess perhaps if you've lost your sight and you've been used to getting up and looking outside and seeing it's light therefore I get up if you're suddenly living in permanent darkness how does that work do you find that blind people do naturally know when to get up or are they completely adrift and not knowing whether it's day or night it must be very discombobulating it's really appalling and mm. uh, working with these individuals you appreciate the profound and deep frustration they've lost their sense of space their sense of vision but they've also lost their sense of time and so I remember chatting to one one veteran who said you know I try and, and regulate my sleep-wake cycle but I can't you know I'll wake up and I think well I know it's a Wednesday and on a Wednesday I cut the grass and so I, I, I'll work up these are very fiercely independent individuals mm. so sort of works out how, how to get the lawnmower out and then starts cutting the grass and it's three o'clock in the morning oh, gosh. so completely mm. lost it's like unremitting jet lag and it's not simply the failure to match one's sort of behavior and activities to when everybody else is matching but it's also one's physiology is completely sort of messed up so it's it's something that we're working as I say I mean if I can end my career having <laughs> you know solving that problem I'll be very very happy uh, indeed amazing now you mentioned the word jet lag there and I know that this is going out at a time when a lot of people will be thinking about jetting off on holidays potentially long haul what could we do to mitigate jet lag is, is jet lag real and how do we best get over it 
Yeah, jet lag is very real, and we get over it as a result of exposure to the light-dark cycle in the new time zone. But you have to be slightly careful. I mean, if you're flying west, if you're flying from uh, London to New York, then it's best to seek out the light in the afternoon when you get when you get to the states and that will essentially delay the clock to new york time but if you're flying east to say sydney then when you arrive in sydney it'll be at a time when you'll delay your body clock you're still based on london time and so you'll actually push the clock back towards europe so the key thing is you want to advance the clock And so what you do is, for the first few days, you wear dark glasses, you avoid morning light, which would push the clock in the wrong direction, and then seek out afternoon light, which will drag the clock forward. Uh, And so that's just sort of one little tip. But also eating, ideally, at local mealtimes is also going to help a bit as well. But it's primarily light. And it will take about a day for every time zone you've crossed to adjust. Mm. I was chatting to an equestrian a few years ago about the Olympics. And they said that they knew all about this. And so they would fly the horses a good month to the new time zone where the Olympics would be, let's say, in Australia, so that the horses would adapt. So horses are just like humans um, (laughs) and, and, and need to adapt, too, for peak performance. You talk about light there. I've heard one little hack for getting over jet lag is to take a torch and shine it on the back of your knees. I'm not oh. entirely sure why, but is there any truth oh. in that? Oh, I, I have to say this story haunts me. Really? So pay- oh, goodness, yes. It's complete rubbish complete rubbish but it came out in a, in a very high profile uh, journal and it, it came out at a very bad time for us hence my sensitivity because you know w- we had a grant in and uh, you know uh, and one of the comments says why is Foster looking for these weird photoreceptors these new photoreceptors in the eye where we know it's light on the back of the knee and <laughs> and of course it was just a a completely daft idea there's no evidence for it and of course what turns out so many groups try to repeat it as you do in in good science it's it's fine having a weird and crazy sort of idea Mm. but it's got to be based upon sort of rigorous experimentation and it seems that there were deep flaws in this set of experiments and it was uh, nobody was able to replicate it and the mechanism that was proposed to uh, drive this response was also pretty much nonsense as, uh, anyway. So anyway, it sort of sits there and many yes. people like yourself say, you know, what about this light behind the knee? I can assure you it's nonsense. OK, you heard it here <laughs> definitively. Uh, before we move off jet lag, tell me about melatonin. Is that something that's nonsense or is it helpful? No, it, it's interesting. Melatonin is often rather confusingly called a sleep hormone. And it is not a sleep hormone. It is a mild modulator of sleep. So individuals, for example, who don't produce melatonin, and so, for example, people who uh, have broken their neck, quadriplegics, don't produce any melatonin. And indeed, many of us are on beta blockers, and that reduces melatonin uh, levels by more than 80%. And sleep is, is barely affected in those individuals. And if you take supplementary melatonin, it can, in the very best trials, showed that it produced about 30 minutes more sleep and it speeded up the time you could go to sleep by about 15 minutes or so. So it is a mild modulator of sleep, but it is certainly not a sleep hormone. The thing for jet lag, and many people take it for jet lag, 
The advice is, for example, airline pilots and aircrew not to take melatonin because you don't know where the body clock is. And so you could sort of modulate the, the clock, but in the wrong direction. And I think that because melatonin is similar to other brain chemicals, there has been a slight worry that it might mimic it might block some of the receptors like serotonin, which are involved in mood. And so people who have a history, a family history of mental health issues, are also suggested not to take melatonin. I think it's broadly pretty harmless, but I personally don't use it. I did try. I did try when I was flying to Australia quite a bit, and I found it had really no impact whatsoever. And the empirical studies from the lab suggest it's a mild effect at best. Mm, interesting. Well, we're going to pause for a quick ad break now. When we come back, we're going to be asking some more questions to get advice on how to get even more attuned to our body clock, especially in relation to getting some better sleep. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So welcome back, and I am so delighted to be continuing this conversation and moving on from the kind of basic outline for circadian rhythm, day, night, jet lag. Let's talk about sleep because there is still so much information, perhaps misinformation, mythology about sleep, whether that's to do with quality or quantity, 
Can I just start with a really basic question here? How much sleep do you think we absolutely should be getting every night? Is there a set magic number? Well, Liz, this is part of the reason why I wanted to write Lifetime. I was getting really quite irritated with the sort of sergeant majors of sleep screaming, you must get eight hours, and it must be uninterrupted, and you can't do this, and you must do that. And the key thing for me is that sleep is extremely dynamic. It varies enormously between individuals. Some people in the healthy range can get by on six hours sleep. Some people genuinely need 10 hours of sleep. So the key thing is that you work out what your sleep needs are and you defend your behaviours accordingly. In the same way, the idea that if you wake up in the middle of the night, this is a disaster, this is bad sleep. Well, if you look at the pre-industrial records of sleep and indeed look at societies today without electric light, then sleep is what's called biphasic or polyphasic, which means you'll, you'll go to sleep, you'll wake up, you sort of may wander around, you may interact with others, you'll go back to sleep again, wake up again, and then go back to sleep again. And the problem is that we've become so anxious about our sleep, and we don't know all the information about sleep. So when people wake up, they think, oh my goodness, that's it. Um, That's the end of sleep. I may as well start drinking coffee and doing my emails. And in fact, if you lay quietly and If you can relax, then you'll almost certainly go to sleep. If you're finding it more difficult, you get out of bed, uh, keep the lights low and read a book or listen to some relaxing music. You'll feel tired and you'll go back. And so these two, you know, sleep duration and a consolidated block of, of sleep, these are things that we all need to know and not worry about. I think one of the fascinating things is we've become more aware of our sleep, but in the process, we've become very anxious about it. Mm. I, I remember giving a public talk uh, before lockdown and a chap came up to me afterwards and said, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, I, I, I can assure you, you will die. But it's not necessarily because you don't get eight hours of sleep. And I think the key thing is, we also sort of think that sleep is what you get and there's nothing that we can do about it. And the first thing we need to really ask ourselves is, am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting the sleep that I individually need? And it's very easy to address that. I mean, if you're able to function during the day at an optimal level, chances are you're getting good sleep at night. Mm -hmm. But if you're dependent upon an alarm clock or another person to get you out of bed, if you oversleep extensively on free days, like the weekends or holidays... If you take a long time to wake up, you know, it's called sleep inertia. And if you feel sleepy and irritable and fatigued when awake, these are all things that suggest you're not getting enough um, sleep at night. Also, if you're sort of craving a nap. And if your friends, family and colleagues sort of comment that you seem to be a bit more impulsive or irritable or loss of empathy, and of course if, you, if you're endlessly driving the waking day with caffeine, these are all indicators you're not getting the sleep that you need at night. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we should be aware of the sleep cycles? You know, I I know on sleep tracking apps, for example, you know, you do have different stages of sleep. Do you think that it's very important to try and make sure that we dip down into those deeper, what is it, delta, theta waves that we get? Do we really get regeneration in the brain and all of that during those cycles? (laughs) Okay, this is another point of irritation. Oh dear, (laughs) I'm managing to annoy you (laughs) a lot with this one, aren't I? No, no, it's it's actually really important, actually, we discuss this, and this is another reason, really, for writing Lifetime, because I want to sort of talk about these these issues. And so people get, again, very anxious about their sleep apps. And, for example, again, somebody from a talk came up to me and said, look, I'm not getting any 
deep, slow-wave sleep. And I said, well, how do you know? And they said, well, my, my app is, is, is telling me this. And in fact, I'm so anxious about it, I, I set the alarm uh, for 3 o'clock in the morning to check my app to see how much deep sleep I've had. Oh, dear. And, and so, again, it's, um, a lot of anxiety can be created about it. And I'd make a, a few observations. One is that the sleep apps that are commercially available, none are endorsed by the sleep societies and the sleep academies. Uh, because whilst they're very useful at telling you roughly when you went to sleep and when you woke up, so your sleep duration and your sleep fragmentation if you woke up in the middle of the night, trying to extract slow-wave versus REM sleep is extremely difficult and is often very inaccurate and can cause anxiety. And I suppose the second observation is, well, what do we actually know about slow-wave sleep and REM sleep? And the answer is we don't really understand what they're for. It's very likely that slow-wave sleep is associated with memory consolidation and the processing of information whilst we're sleeping, and REM sleep can be associated with the processing of emotional thoughts and our emotional status. But beyond that, it's sort of a bit of hand-waving. And in fact, I was speaking to a colleague the other day, and they said, trying to understand the human brain by measuring EEG, electroencephalography, which is the sort of slow-wave versus non-slow-wave sleep, that sort of thing. It was a bit like trying to understand what's going on in a building by watching when the lights go on and off and when the toilets flush. It's a very distant measure of brain function. And so I think for the apps, and I, I advise a couple of sort of groups, I said, don't, really don't bother with this. The technology is not there yet, and even with that knowledge, what does it actually provide? In fact, largely a source of anxiety for many. Oh dear. Something that we are told, though, and I'm, I'm hoping that this isn't going to annoy you with, with this question. Um, and that... <laughs> Makes me sound very, very grumpy. I'm not. I'm, I'm actually quite a jolly person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and find a jolly question now, because this is to do with blue light. And you did yeah. mention this earlier, and blue light being stimulating. And I think most of us listening will know that our little small screens that we're so addicted to give off this blue light. So tell me, surely it's true that we should stay off our small screens before bedtime. Uh, uh, no. It's a yes and no there. Okay. <laughs> so yes, uh, those new photoreceptors are maximally sensitive to blue light. They are, in fact, influenced by the rods and cones as well. So it's a pretty broad colour input into the circadian system. It's not just blue light, although that's probably the most important. But what we do know is the amount of light needs to be very bright and it needs to be for a long duration. So a classic experiment was done a few years ago now, which got somebody to look at a light-emitting e-book, something like a Kindle, mm. for four hours on five consecutive nights between 6 o'clock in the evening and 10 o'clock in the, in the evening. Um, and they looked at the impact uh, on sleep. And it delayed sleep onset by 10 minutes. And it was just statistically significant. As well as my, one of my colleagues said, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. <laughs> so in terms of the light emitted from these devices, it's probably not important. And it's negated by the fact that if you're getting up and you're getting bright morning light, it'll counteract any very, very subtle effect that light will have on the clock. Now, clearly, if you're going to have bright artificial light before you go to bed... 
then that could well delay the clock. Remember, dusk light, evening light delays the clock. And it could also uh, have an effect upon alertness. The brighter the light, the more alert we are, and Mm. that will delay sleep onset. So it's smart to keep light levels low, particularly because of the alerting effect. But the amount of light coming from screens is probably not having much of an effect. What we do know, however is those devices are very alerting in terms of what they're doing with the brain. So if you've got a smartphone, you're checking emails, you're looking at WhatsApp, you're looking at the news, you may be doing lots of different sorts of things. And that has been shown, particularly in teenagers, to increase levels of alertness and delay sleep onset. I remember chatting to a young chap a few few years ago and I said you know you've got to be a bit sort of careful about you know devices before you go to bed and he said oh no no it's fine fine I've got one of those those screen things which go from blue light to red light which means I'm not going to stimulate my circadian system and I said well the evidence for that is pretty low anyway so I don't think it's going to help much but incidentally what time do you think you get off to sleep and he says well you know between 2 a.m and 3 a.m every night (laughs) and you just think well you know the think that by using a device like that they're sort of dodging the bullets and actually you're not and so again I think one needs to take these things very carefully it's very important to have a stable sleep-wake cycle Mm -hmm. and young people need to defend their sleep uh, ferociously and I've talked to so many teachers who you say their students are literally falling asleep at the desk and there's also a slight problem there because teenagers are getting shortened sleep they're not optimally, you know, functioning in the school environment, they get home and then they'll have a a sort of a big sleep, a two-hour sleep, which pushes back the pressure for sleep, which means it's more difficult to get to sleep that night. So you've got, you know, all these factors, a delayed biological clock because of all those hormonal changes. You've got, you know, using devices, but you're also less tired because you've had a long sleep in the late afternoon. Mm. And so teenagers need to be very careful because... You know, they'll have a longer nap, which is influencing a a later sleep time. And so uh, try and avoid that and just try not to have that nap when you get home from school and stay up. And then that'll help you get to sleep that night and make you feel more refreshed in the morning. That's very helpful advice. And certainly as as the parent of teens and older students prodding them awake in the middle of the afternoon, I think, would be a very good thing. So I shall quote yeah. you on that one as I approach them with a sharp It's a stick. bit brutal. It's a bit <laughs> brutal. But, but, but it will be better. And in the same way that, you know, not oversleeping at the, at the weekends, trying to get yes. out, get that morning light. So many teenagers try and catch up over the weekend with these huge sleeps. And, of course, what that does is they're missing out the morning light, which is advancing the clock. So they're getting two days of delaying light because mm. they're usually out in the afternoon, which means they start not Monday, actually more difficult to wake up. Yes. So it's, it's really important to get that stabilisation. Now you talk a lot about light. I'm very interested, having moved house recently and bought lots of different light fittings, in the changes in our light environment at home. So everything is going low energy, LED, you know, all these different things that we used to have, tungsten, halogen, You can get daylight light bulbs. What's your view on all these different types of light that we have indoors and the effect on our circadian rhythm or our brains? Well, of course, bright morning light, artificial light in the morning is jolly good, particularly in the winter when you're not going to get much outside. And many people, of course, are commuting to work in the dark and then commuting home in the dark. And so they're 
a sort of bright artificial light can be a surrogate for, for natural light and help set the clock. The difficulty is, of course, as we've discussed, is that if you have bright artificial light immediately before bedtime, that will delay the clock and it'll mean it'll be more, more difficult to get up. So I think the sensible use of light, and particularly during the day, you know, when the clock is not that sensitive to shifting effects of light, is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And, and I know many sort of in the industry, the lighting industry, are trying to provide ways in which our artificial lighting systems mimic the natural lighting systems by ramping up in the morning and then ramping down in the evening. And that sort of makes good sense. I mean, one, one thing that is slightly ironic is that What's the last thing that most of us do before we go to sleep? We stand in the most brightly illuminated room in the house, the bathroom, bathroom <laughs> looking into an illuminated mirror uh-huh. um, whilst we clean our teeth. And, of course, that's quite a lot of light, and that would have some delaying effect. And I think some canny manufacturer needs to develop a, a bathroom mirror which has a morning set, setting, bright light, um, mm. both alerting and, and advancing the clock, and then an evening setting which would uh, be dimmer, uh, reducing a uh, alertness and not uh, delaying the clock. Clever. Well, there's a great business opportunity for any entrepreneurial (laughs) person listening. But would you say then that the impact on our brains, whether we're subjected to fluorescent, tungsten, LED, halogen, it's all pretty much the same inside? Light is light? Uh, Sort of. Certainly, if the light is bright enough from these variety of different sources, it means we can do the sorts of things we need to do. I mean, colour vision, for example. And most uh, office lighting and domestic lighting, of course, allows sufficient light for colour vision. It gets less clear about the regulation of the clock. But again, if it's bright from the hundreds to low thousands of lux for a long period of time, greater than 30 minutes, then you're going to be able to regulate the clock as well. I mean, you know, where people have studied this systematically and light boxes have been used, Mm. you get a big effect upon the clock if the light is going to be 10,000 lux, which is the sort of thing you'd get outside on a cloudy day for 30 minutes. So that is a, a strong circadian signal to the clock. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sort of light you get from a Kindle, even on its br- brightest setting, will be something like 30 lux. So it gives you some sense of the changes. And in fact, some of your, your listeners might want to go online and buy a lux meter and just get a sense of how variable our light environment is. You know, put it at the window, maybe get 3,000 lux, but um, a meter or so into the middle of a room, it'll have dropped to maybe 100 lux or so. Outside on a bright sunny day, even in the UK, you can get to 80,000 lux. Uh, So we've become cave dwellers once more because we spend most of our time inside um, and we're not getting exposure to that really very bright environmental light which is as I say you know in 1800 90 what was it 95 98 percent of people worked outside in some form yeah Yeah. fascinating that I've just added that to my uh, to-do list actually lux meter and also (laughs) I think fitting dimmer switches in every room especially the bathroom I think is also another very good that's that's what we've done at home Mm. Uh, certainly uh, dimmer switches I think can be very useful in the evening Mm. what about people who are working shifts you know people who do have to get up go to work in the dark come home try and get to sleep when it's light this is a, a huge problem 
And the assumption, I remember chatting to the uh, chairman of the Confederation of British Industry a few, several years ago now, and he was sort of saying, right, we can, cure, we can cure the problems of British industry by running on a 24-7 basis and much more night shift work and et cetera, et cetera. And here was a, a decent, well-meaning individual, but no idea of the consequences, mm-hmm. the biological consequences of what he was saying. The assumption is that night shift workers will shift to the demands of working at night. And 97% of them do not. Mm-hmm. And the problem, again, is light. You're working within the factory or the office under relatively dim lighting, you know, artificial light, let's say three, four, five hundred lux if you're lucky. But then you're experiencing bright natural light on the drive home or the walk home outside or indeed in, in the evening. And the clock will always defer to the brighter light signal as being daytime. So the clock and all the biology that the clock is regulating in night shift workers is broadly the same as what's going on with the day shift workers. And so how do, how do night shift workers function? Well, it seems that to override this entire biology which is saying you should be asleep, you activate the stress axis. Mm. And what the stress axis, things like cortisol and adrenaline will do, is allow you to override this biology and function to some extent. The stress axis gets a bad rap, but actually it's really useful. And I've sort of made the analogy, it's a bit like first gear in a car. You put the car into first gear and you've got that wonderful acceleration. But if you leave the engine in first gear, you're going to destroy it. And that's very much like the stress axis. And the problem that night shift workers face is that they've got to keep the stress response on for long and sustained periods to stop them falling asleep. And, of course, sustained stress can lead to a whole bunch of of, of health issues. So that's the fundamental problem with the night shift. And so it's been associated, of course, with a whole range of diseases, cardiovascular disease, altered sort of levels of, infe- um, um, of the immune system, so lowered immunity, increased infection, high rates of cancer, metabolic abnormalities such as type 2 diabetes and obesity, really prominent in night shift workers, particularly long-term night shift workers. And indeed, depression and psychosis is also associated with disrupted sleep on the night shift. And so it's, it's a very serious issue. And I think we need to think about what we could do. And I think there's a duty of care yes. of employers. Mm. And, and so what could we do? I mean, I, I don't think it should be a whole bunch of hand-wringing. We're not going to put the 24-7 society back in its bottle, as it were. I mean, we're still needing frontline staff in our police and our medical professions and our firemen and women. So knowing that you're at a higher risk of disease and illness then night shift workers should have higher frequency health checks to try and catch these conditions Mm. before they become chronic. Knowing, I think, a really very interesting study a few years ago looked at junior doctors after the night shift, and 57% had reported having either a crash or a near miss on the drive home. So we should be providing, you know, these little vigilance detectors that you can put onto the dashboard, which detect head nod or eye roll, and alert you to the fact that you're falling asleep so you've got the devices you've got high frequency health checks but one of the most obvious knowing that night shift workers have high rates of obesity type 2 diabetes what type of food do we provide our night shift workers it's high fat it's high sugar it's mm. almost the worst possible stuff you can yes. imagine and, and 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 so again i don't understand why nobody has developed a high protein easy to digest snack for 
use on the night shift. These are things that would help. And, and in a very important area is education. Night shift workers need to know how their biology will change. And not only them, but the people they spend their time with, their partners, mm. or indeed an extended family. So you know, the divorce rate, for example, is in some cases six times higher for night shift workers compared to day shift workers. And partners need to know it's not that they're their partner has become a monster. It's just some of the things that happen, you know, the loss of empathy, the frustration, the risk-taking, the sort of lack of social connectivity that happens with, with chronic tiredness. And I think uh, partners need to know this. It's, it's, as I say, it's not that their partners are becoming monsters. These are some of the consequences, and people need to know about it. Mm. So, so important to be aware, as you say. And I've read that some of the best-known human-caused disasters have come about as a result of sleep deprivation. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so many uh, examples. There's a very good paper on this, um, and I'm very happy to send it to you, looking at uh, major disasters. So the Exxon Valdez, you know, everybody thinks it's because the captain was drunk. Well, he he was, and he was asleep in his cabin, and a chronically tired, inexperienced crew member was being actually told, you know, change the direction of the ship, you're going to run aground. And they just were so tired, they couldn't process the information um, and crashed. The Challenger, which is a very interesting one, where there were lots of sort of delays and things, and they were individuals you know, who were making the decision to launch were being warned. And really? The, sort of, the, the space shuttle Challenger? This, this is not a smart thing to do. And, and the problem is with oh tiredness is that you can't process information appropriately. You do stupid and unreflective things. And so, yeah, it was a very interesting study, that. And indeed, the individuals who were chronically tired, and therefore, you know, you have to ask, it wasn't, in a sense, their fault, made an inappropriate decision to launch. There's, a, there's another case of the Air India crash a few years ago where the pilot was actually landing the plane and that because of chronic tiredness, actually had what's called a micro-sleep, actually fell asleep in the middle of landing the plane. And the plane hit the deck, and a large number of people died as a consequence. So, yes, we've got to be so careful. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind, not only tiredness is very dangerous, but even if you're not tired, your ability to process information in the early hours of the morning, due to the circadian system, let's say sort of 4 o'clock in the morning, your cognitive abilities, your ability to process information, is worse at 4 o'clock in the morning than the effect of alcohol. In fact, sufficient alcohol to make you drunk, you're not as cognitively impaired as you are at 4 o'clock in the morning. So if, if, your, if your listeners take nothing from this as they drive you know, on holiday, yes, I'm just thinking please that. don't try not to drive <laughs> don't, don't at 4, drive o'clock, at four in o'clock, o'clock in the morning. And certainly if, if you do, be aware that other people on the road may well be in a yeah. similar state. Absolutely, yes. Mm. Well, without recounting everything that's in the book, perhaps you could just leave us with some more tips on any changes that we might do to listen to our body clock, even little tiny things that could be helpful. Yeah, I think I think we can think about this across four domains. I mean, there's during the day, before bed, the bedroom itself, and in bed. And just, you know, as you say, I won't recount everything in the book. <laughs> but I do think, you know, going back to during the day, that morning light exposure is, is mm. really important. And if you can't get real light, then get a light box or mm-hmm. something. One of the sort of great enemies of sleep is stress and 
try and step back from the end of the day. And it's been so difficult, of course, during COVID because the workplace has been home. And it's been very difficult to dissociate. But whatever it is, um, I mean, I was very sort of sceptical about things like mindfulness. But now the data are very clear. It really does help you relax at the end of the day. And things like yoga. Do something Mm. that, that allows you to wind down at the end of the day. Before bed... Again, we've touched on this, but, you know, keeping those, those levels don't have bright light in the domestic spaces. I would very much sort of suggest avoiding prescription drugs, sedatives. Obviously, you need to talk to your general practitioner. And what they will advise is that short-term use is okay, but try not to have these as something that you use routinely because they are sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. And so they can in fact harm some of the processes going on in the brain like memory formation and the processing of information so short-term use fine not long-term use one of the one of the things in in my household is avoid the discussion of stressful topics immediately before bed <laughs> yes. i mean it's it's very difficult because it's, yeah. it's the only time when many couples actually get the time to sure. talk but I've, I've absolutely banned any discussion of the um, of family finances before we go to bed. Um, the bedroom itself shouldn't be too warm. Sort of 18, 20 degrees shouldn't be too warm. And key, as much as one can, and of course it's been very difficult at times of COVID when the bedroom has become the office as well, but try and remove TVs, computers, tablets, smartphones. Again, not because of the light per se, because of the alerting effect and the temptation to use these devices which will alert the brain and and mean it will be more difficult to get to sleep. Mm. Keep to a routine, as we've discussed. It actually is fascinating, considering that 30% of our time will be spent in bed, many of us are really quite cheap about the sorts of mattresses and pillows <laughs> and things we invest in. And actually it's worth, it's worth trying out mattresses and trying to make that bed that haven of relaxation and sleep. One area which I would uh, be really like to discuss, which is if your partner snores. This ah. is um, a really tricky one. And, of course, earplugs is the default solution. But do make sure that your partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the musculature of the throat collapses, and they stop breathing. So if, if you notice your partner stop breathing and then wakes up with this sort of gasping sensation, this is obstructive sleep apnea, and they must seek out uh, help from their general practitioner and get that corrected, usually by a thing called CPAP, which is sort of a, a, an air thing, that you, uh, a mask that you put on. It can be a bit tricky to get used to, but it works in most of the cases. And as we've sort of, again, touched... Oh, and before we move on from earplugs, if you can't deal with earplugs, and if you have the opportunity, it's no great shame to sleep in a separate bed. So many people think, you know, it's it's an indication of a a failure of the marriage. It isn't. It means that you'll both get better sleep. Yes. um, um, And you'll both be more relaxed, happier individuals, which might make the marriage go better. And again, the last point I make is if you do wake in the middle of the night, stay calm. You may want to consider leaving the bed, do something relaxing and then return. Uh, Waking up in the middle of the night does not necessarily mean the end of sleep. So the key thing is there's loads of stuff that we can do to improve the sleep that we individually are trying to get. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, Lifetime, the new science of the body clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and health is out now. And very, very many thanks to you today, my guest, Professor Russell Foster. Thank you. Really a great delight to chat, Liz. 
Oh, what a lovely man and what a fascinating chat, don't you think? Well, if you would like to get in touch, you can find me on social media at Lizelle Me or my team at Lizelle Wellbeing. And please do leave us that all-important review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help other people find us and maybe get the expert help they need too. But also, we just love reading your comments. So do get in touch. We are on all the usual channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, even newly on TikTok. Don't say we don't keep up with the times. Or, of course, you can find more information with lots of links and resources over on my wellness website, which is The Mothership, and that is lizellwellbeing.com. There you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter filled with news, views, podcast links, special offers, competitions, money off savings, as well as plenty more tips on living well. I'll be back next Friday with another dose of wellness wisdom you can trust. Don't forget to click the star ratings before you leave, to like and subscribe to hear the next episode. Until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is a fresh air production. With thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith, Jesse Bent and Sarah Moore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.